So this morning we're going to have, a, uh, I uh, hope it'll be, I'm going to say fun, but we're going to be in Isaiah 61, the uh, uh, chapter that Pastor Joshua just read this, this morning. And uh, um, this Isaiah 61 is part of a much larger section of chapters 40 to 66. And uh, um, if you start in the beginning of that section in Isaiah 40, it begins with comfort. And it begins thrilling. Listen. And it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It begins with comfort. And it's appropriate that Isaiah 40 uh, begins with comfort because the next 26 chapters that follow from Isaiah uh, 40 to 66 announces the good news of how God is not only going to save his people, Israel, but also the Gentile nations through God's suffering servant, the anointed one, the son of David. And so it is really all about comfort in, in, in what follows next. And so this chapter, chapter 61, uh, by, taken by itself, I, I trust by God's grace, is going to be a thrilling picture of God's transforming grace to undeserving sinners through his anointed one. And I'm going to say that again and again, because that's what we're going to focus on. God's transforming grace to undeserving sinners through his anointed one. And yet, I think as we uh, kind of go on this expedition together, it's going to feel a little bit like maybe you're being blindfolded. And I'm sorry about that. You're going to be led into a, a museum where there's an exhibition devoted to one painter. But you don't get to see the whole painting. We don't have time to read Isaiah 40 to 66. You're going in there blindfolded. And, uh, and we've already started to kind of take off the blindfold. And you're just going to get to see one painting. And then you're going to have that blindfold put back on, and you're going to be led out of the museum after that. Now, after we do this, and that one painting is Isaiah 61, I hope you're going to want to go back and say, I should spend more time in this section. I want to go back in, into this museum and see the rest of these paintings. And you'll, you'll come back and explore the, less, the rest of this exhibit, because really the whole thing is about God's transforming grace to, uh, to undeserving sinners. But we're not going to try to do all 27 chapters. Um, we're just going to focus on Isaiah 61. I do hope, though, that you'll, you'll see the beauty of this one painting, even though it's part of this bigger, ex, more extended, longer story. Because the subject of this one painting, when you take uh, the blindfold off, is Jesus Christ. And he is beautiful. He's God's anointed one. He's powerful. He is rejoicing, we're going to see. And... Uh, it is thrilling. So as this blindfold comes off, I trust by God's grace together, we're going to see how beautiful uh, Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to be doing this, this morning, is really seeing how uh, in this ministry of the Anointed One, we're going to see how shockingly gracious God is. That God in his grace, I'm going to say it again, transforms undeserving sinners through his Anointed One. I think that's a good summary of what this chapter uh, uh, is about. The book of Isaiah is all about the whole thing is that we need God to save us and that uh, our God, Yahweh, is a saving God is what the name Isaiah means, that he does for us what no one else can. In Isaiah 61, we're going to see that not only that God is able to do that, but he delights in doing that. He loves being gracious. It is who he is. Even his anointed rejoices in his transforming grace to undeserving sinners. His grace is not a begrudging grace. He is generous. He is overflowing in grace. And so if you have need for grace from God, he has it for you. And if you are in need of transformation, of change, Jesus has the power to change you. And so we're going to uh, look this morning with hope at God's anointed one, the one that God has appointed to save you. Now, we're going to switch to, as we look at this section here of 
of Isaiah, 40 to 66, you can kind of imagine, imagine you're on a team for a minute of your favorite sport of choice, and uh, your team just won, a, uh, won the championship in a crushing defeat of the opponent, and you were the underdog. Um, you can imagine a score of 200 to zero. That'd be very impressive in basketball, be more impressive in hockey, it doesn't matter what score it is, 200 to zero. Your team was the underdog. It's a ginormous win. And uh, imagine someone follows you into, into the locker room saying, this team is a mess. We're going to get blown out in the next game. So it's unlikely that anyone on the team wants to hear that. It's unlikely that anyone on the team is going to take those warnings seriously. And um, even if you were the underdog, they're not going to care about your evaluation of them, right? They're like, come on, we just had this huge victory. Why are you, why are you being such a downer? But that's a little of what Isaiah 40 to 66 is like. It's a little bit of what's going on there. The prophet Isaiah has really been given a daunting task, and it is a daunting task in, in his call. Um, God says, no one's going to listen to you. Um, the prophet Isaiah has been given this daunting task of calling for repentance to the people of Judah, um, to the lower kingdom of uh, Israel, the people of Judah. Um, but he's, he's calling them to repentance after an, an overwhelming and undeserved victory against the Assyrians. And this victory is recorded in Isaiah 37, and it's when the angel of the Lord is sent um, and takes the life of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So Jerusalem is in trouble, the Assyrian host is out there, 185,000 soldiers, and God destroys them. So you can imagine Judah does not want to hear bad news now, right? Like, like, like this is awesome. Well, Isaiah knows that Judah, and, and King Hezekiah knows, Judah's still going to be taken into captivity. There's, it's not going to be the Assyrians. It's going to be Babylon. It's not going to happen right now. It's not going to happen in King Hezekiah's lifetime, but it is going to happen. King Hezekiah knew this, Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7, the chapter before this big section. Uh, Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, "'Hear the word of the Lord of hosts.'" Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, Hezekiah, who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And that's a little bit of what Isaiah had to do. He had to go into the locker room after this massive victory and uh, say, uh, um, well, really, as we read through, we learned at camp that that massive victory actually happens after um, the, 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 the uh, announcement that Isaiah just made. But as you're reading through Isaiah, um, this is what happens right before destruction of Babylon by Babylon is coming. And uh, um, Judah wouldn't really have wanted to listen to that after the Assyrian victory. Instead of turning to the one true God, Judah continued to trust in false gods. They continued to trust in foreign nations. They continued to trust in empty religious rituals. Probably, if you can imagine, after that shocking victory of Assyria, uh, the, that uh, army being weighed laced, laid waste, Many would assume the God of Israel was pleased with their worship. They're like, let's just keep this going. Maybe some of them would be attributing it to their idols that they were worshiping. Either way, their hearts were hardened instead of humbled. Judah was going to be demolished by Babylon. Judah would go through exile. But for those who later went into exile, they would find comfort any who would open up this book of Isaiah, just as we read from Isaiah 40, to, uh, from, from, from Isaiah 40, where he calls for comfort. Isaiah 40 to 66 has hope for the desperate. And if you read through this whole section, if we were to go through that whole museum, even on a lightning trip, because we don't have much time to stay there, Isaiah foretells of Israel's return from the Babylonian exile of God's coming servant, the Messiah, the anointed one, who would usher in an everlasting covenant after taking upon himself the punishment of sins. 
It tells of Israel's restored kingdom and of its transformed people. Of Israel fulfilling its privileged call to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. It tells of of God um, um, making himself known to the world through Israel. It tells of the curse of sin being reversed on the earth and of the final eternal state when even death is finally eradicated. All of that is in Isaiah 40 to 66. It's thrilling. Now, we've been reading Isaiah 40 to 66 weekly as a, a, a church, one, one, one chapter a week. And so today when we read Isaiah 61, it just felt like too good of an opportunity to not focus in on this passage. And as Pastor Joshua mentioned, when he was in Luke 4, and if you want the date, it was March 27th. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because it's such a great sermon. So you can go online, go back and listen to that sermon, March 27th of, of last year. And uh, in, in Luke 4, we read the, uh, the following. And so I'm going to read a little bit of, of Luke 4 here because he, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. They didn't have chapters then. We do. Just like what we've done this morning. But Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, Luke writes. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in in your hearing. Now, hearing that, the hometown crowd of Nazareth should have rushed the stage, picked up Jesus on their shoulder and ran to Jerusalem with their king. But as we know, that isn't what happened. Instead, his childhood friends in in the crowd tried to throw him off a cliff. Now, why? Well, that sermon will tell you it's because they wanted, surely, and and if you read through Isaiah 61, we're going to go through, they wanted these blessings. They wanted the wealth of the nations to, to come to Israel, for Israel to be rebuilt. They wanted some of those blessings, but they were not willing to admit that they were undeserving sinners. So in Isaiah 61, we're going to see the offer of God's transforming grace to undeserving sinners through his anointed one, which them in Nazareth said no to. We'd rather throw them off a cliff than be needy. So this morning, don't make the same mistake that they made at Nazareth of being too good to need Jesus. Don't be too good to need Jesus because we are unified this morning in our need of Jesus Christ and of his transforming grace. We're going to look at Isaiah 61 in three sections. Um, I've, I've got a little title for him. It doesn't really matter. Verses 1 through, 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 through 3, we're going to see how the anointed one proclaims good news. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first. And just if you want to just kind of encapsulate that with a little summary, the anointed one proclaims good news. And it is good news, as you can already see. Uh, in these verses, Jesus, uh, Isaiah records a message of good news. Uh, It's not preached by the uh, prophet Isaiah, though. He's recording it. He's predicting the one whom God has has anointed with his spirit doing the preaching. And we know who that is because Luke tells us it is Jesus. The word anointed in Hebrew is the word from which we get the word Messiah. So that's what anointed one means. The, I mean, it doesn't mean. Messiah means anointed one. That's also the word we get Christ. That is the Greek word Christ. So Jesus Christ is Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. And how is he anointed? He is anointed with God's spirit. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And as that anointed one, he is the promised king. He is the promised prophet, and Hebrews reveals that he is our our great high priest as well. He is the anointed one. Now, previously, we've had a lot of prep, if we were to go through the whole book of Isaiah, for this anointed one. I'm going to read some well-known passages, because I think it builds a a picture of who this anointed one is. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That prophecy is about this anointed one. Another prophecy is from Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon it. That's just what we're talking about in Isaiah 61. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, that's the anointed one. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, he's described as a servant there. It is also the anointed one. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Again, listen, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Um, let's, let's, Let's look last at Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Another one of these prophecies of the son of David, the anointed one upon whom God's spirit comes, the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so that is who this anointed one is. And so as you're reading through Isaiah, all those prophecies come together. And this is that anointed one who's proclaiming this good news. And he brings this good news to the poor. This good news is to the poor. The poor are those who have been brought low by life. They've been crushed by circumstances, whether that is they're they're impoverished because of a lack of food and clothing, whether they are afflicted because they are under the boots of of their oppressor. The poor are those who are in, in dire straits, so they have no choice but to be honest, right? They have no pretense. Uh, they admit their deficiency. They don't say, I'm okay, everything's fine. The poor know I am crushed, I am needy, I need help. Uh, The poor don't need to question the validity of this good news because God's spirit rests upon the one whom God sent. He has the credentials to bring this good, good news. God has sealed this anointed one with his spirit. He has been approved of God and he speaks this good news to all who are needy, to all who are afflicted, to all who are oppressed. And we're going to see more who that is as we keep going here. Now, from the end of verse 1 to the middle of verse 3 of Isaiah 61, we learn more about this nature of good news. First, we notice that the anointed one says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, this is really, it's really important here. See, the anointed one isn't just making an announcement. He's not just saying, good news to the poor. He says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. The anointed one isn't just making an announcement. He's doing the work himself. He is bandaging the brokenhearted, and that's what Jesus does to us. He has the power to fix hearts that are broken. And he's not just telling captives that there is liberty out there. The anointed one is breaking apart chains, and he's kicking down prison doors. He is victorious. He is unstoppable. He has arrived. The Christ is not just proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He has really kind of burned all of the other calendars. And he is rewriting time itself. This is a new age of human history. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Henceforward, God's favor to his people will continue in eternity. And if you are in Christ Jesus, the year of the Lord's favor is your year. It has got no stop. And we know that the anointed one can do this because of his work on the cross as a suffering servant. Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We already read about that in Isaiah 53, if we're going through, as part of this 40 to 66 section, we know that, that Jesus was the one um, who poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and uh, he bore the sins of many. 
He bore our sins so that he can proclaim favor to us. He has extinguished God's wrath upon himself so that all you can enjoy for eternity is his grace and never one drop of his wrath. The arrival of God's favor is also accompanied by the day of vengeance of our God. Now that is really good news to those who belong to him. There's favor for God's people and judgment for his enemies. If you're an enemy of his this morning, you don't need to stay that way, though. You can run to him and flee for safety to him. But one day we're all going to rejoice when God's enemies are punished. The vengeance comes and God is glorified. The poor and the needy, the undeserving are welcome. The poor and needy, the undeserving are welcome. But the self-sufficient proud who resist, who are really choosing God's vengeance, right? The self-sufficient proud who resist are really choosing God's vengeance. Don't do that this morning, right? Instead, say, no, I'm the, I'm the undeserving sinner. I mean, I'm deserving of punishment, but I don't deserve grace. I'm poor and needy. Now, in verse 2, the promise is the arrival of the anointed one, that he's going to comfort all who mourn. They mourn over their own sin against God, and they mourn over their sin against others. Perhaps they mourn over some of the consequences of their sin as they realize God has entrusted life to me, and I've squandered it pleasing myself instead of him. I've lived for myself rather than for him. Perhaps they mourn too because of other sin against them and even in a sinful world where others sin against others. Those who mourn, mourn because they are the broken in a broken world. They can't fix themselves and they can't fix the world, but we desperately need fixing. The anointed one is going to look at those who mourn and he's going to transform their mourning into joy. And Isaiah gets, gets, uh, is, is, uh, is poetic in his language here in, in verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The goodness oozes out of that. Even if you've never, you know, worn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the idea is there. You know, like, give me some of that oil of gladness. I don't want this mourning. The picture is a complete reversal from, de from destitution to celebration, from defeat to victory, from despair to delight, from rags to suits. Now, it's more than emotional change here, though, that is going on. It's more than just a change because of circumstances. The transformation is one of our very natures, of new life growing out of dead growth. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. This is beautiful. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He describes them as strong and stable like oaks and their stability is due to the spirit-enabled righteous character. They, because of the change that God has wrought about into their heart, they conform to God's nature. They love what he loves and they hate what he hates. They are becoming like God. Now, this is not just a matter of turning over a new leaf. It's not making a commitment to be a better person. It's not embarking on a newly energized effort to stop some activity that we shouldn't do. They are planted by the Lord. He takes them and he gives life to them. It says that he may be glorified. These oaks of righteousness flourish because God has planted them so that he alone gets the glory. He has graciously transformed them through his anointed one. Now, Israel thought that they were waiting for the anointed one. But we saw in Luke 4, when he came, and what the rest of Luke is going to show is that they killed him. Most Jews didn't want to admit their need of God's gracious transformation of their lives. But that's not the end of the story. 
After his resurrection, the book of Acts records how God's anointed proclaimed this good news through his apostles to both Israel and to Gentiles. So this good news of the anointed one transforming undeserving sinners spreads around the world. And that's what we're doing here this morning. That's what God is doing in this world. It is good news for you today, but only if you are poor. But only if you are poor. Now, the physically poor, the physically afflicted, the oppressed, kind of have a jump start in seeing their need for good news. Because their circumstances of life are really hard. They experience the brokenness of the world in a way in which those who are rich and just doing well may not. But it's not enough to see that the world is broken. Right? So that's not enough. We have to see that we are broken that we need to be transformed, that we need salvation. And so the question for you is, do you see that you are spiritually broken? Are you the needy, the brokenhearted, the enslaved to various passions and pleasures, as Paul says in Titus? Will you mourn over the way you've disobeyed God, the way you've hurt others? Do you admit, I am helpless to fix myself? Are you the undeserving sinner in need of God's transforming grace? Well, that's why Christ came, to proclaim that good news to you. That's what God is doing today through his word. He is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. You can be in God's grace, enjoy his grace for eternity if you come to him. Will you listen to God's anointed one? Will you go to Jesus Christ? Will you go to him to be rescued, to be comforted, to be forgiven, to be replanted as this oak of righteousness, living the rest of your life in conformity to his law, not perfectly, but wholeheartedly because you love him? Doing so requires forsaking the other confidences that you've had. It requires giving up, attempting to be okay. Now, for Israel, they're always trying to trust in the nations or false gods. We might try to trust in our bank accounts, in our parents' approval, in accolades at work and getting straight A's and getting a new certificate or a raise and our own little kingdom of our homes and our not being as bad as someone else. We try to trust in all kinds of confidences rather than going and saying, I am poor, I am needy, I am helpless, I need Jesus Christ. When you are before God, when, when, you're, when you are exposed and when you see your neediness, are you willing to be served by Christ? Are you willing to receive grace from him? Or will you insist on independence? Being able to clothe yourself. Being the one saying, no, 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 God, let me give you something. Like, I'm going to try a little bit harder here. Instead of saying, God, I've got nothing. I need good news from you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to liberate me. What this anointed one is offering here, what this Jesus is offering, that favor, that is the favor that I need. And it's only found in him. So I'm going to run from any other refuge and I'm going to look to Christ alone. Will you do that? See, God delights, he delights in taking withered weeds that have been scorched by sin and, 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 and by suffering and that are just withering there. And he replants them as strong oaks. And he describes them as oaks of righteousness. Those who have been declared righteous by him because Jesus has taken our punishment. And then he transforms them. He grows them into these oaks of righteousness. That character is different, that flourish obeying God's laws. It's beautiful. This is, this, this, is what, this is that gracious, transforming work of God that the anointed one has come to give to undeserving sinners. That's what we see in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. You can enjoy this favorable year of the Lord. You can be transformed. Now, the church right now is enjoying that. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are, you are enjoying that. You are an oak of righteousness. You might be like, I don't look like it's kind of more like a sapling of righteousness. You are continuing to grow. You are an oak of righteousness. You're 
certainty, your stability is in him. He is changing you. He's transforming you. He does this so he gets the glory. But we're going to see here in verses 4 through 9 um, that as we are enjoying this privilege now, that Israel is still waiting to enjoy large scale this same kind of privilege. And we're going to see that God has promised these privileges to undeserving Israel. We really shouldn't be surprised because we are undeserving sinners who have been graced by God of the Lord's favor. And what we're going to see is that Israel is still waiting for God's undeserving grace too. I mean, his, they're undeserving sinners who don't deserve his grace. So waiting for that grace. So let's look at verses four through nine at this, uh, these privileges promised to, to undeserving Israel. We're gonna see privileges promised to undeserving Israel. And so we're gonna see the extent of God's grace in verses four through seven to this sinful nation. And, and as you read through in verse four, we see that there's this physical rebuilding uh, of Israel that's going to take place. These oaks of righteousness, when God works in their hearts, it says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Remember, this is written to the southern kingdom of Judah before exile. The palaces are still there. The temple's still there. They've been stripped of some of their gold, but they're still, but they're still standing. Um, the northern kingdom, though, has been destroyed. And so to those who would read this letter in Babylonian exile, after the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem, they would be encouraged by this. They would see God's promise here. They were waiting for these cities to be rebuilt. These promises would be hope instilling. They would look forward to this return of, uh, of, of Israel's grandeur, like under King Solomon. But even though Israel returned to the promised land, during the days of Jesus, when Israel read these verses, they would still look forward to this because those promises hadn't been yet kept. The devastation had not yet been rebuilt. The days of Solomon hadn't yet returned. And so for many in our church, as we read about this, um, and, and I don't know what your uh, responses are, it may sound a little bit like a fairy tale. But just imagine how much glory God would get when Jesus returns to earth, and we know he's returning, uh, as he reigns on earth, the curse is being reversed, and he's reigning from the most beautiful city on the earth that you've ever seen. Now, you imagine a little bit the stuff of, of a fairy tale's like Rivendell from the Lord of the Rings. Imagine Yahweh reigning from Rivendell, beautiful city. Or for those of you who are Marvel fans, Wakanda, right? Wakanda is this beautiful city where there's technology and beautiful together. And we're like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Can you imagine a city like that where Jesus Christ reigns? And the whole earth knows about it. And they're not going to get vibranium or whatever that stuff is. But to, some of you know what I'm talking about. But to get, or now more of you admit it, but to get good news, right? I want Yahweh. And so they're going to this city to get God's glory. Verse 5 describes how beautiful of a city it is that foreigners work there. Listen, Isaiah 61, 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowman and vine dresser. This never happened in Israel yet. Now, these workers could be a kind of tribute that the nations send. But you can also imagine the young of the nations or maybe those who are getting towards retirement age. And you know really where I really want to go? I want to go to Israel. I want to do some farming there. I want to tend the flock. You might be like, well, why? Why do they want to join this work abroad program? Well, because he's such a good King Jesus. I, I would be so privileged simply to grow some strawberries that would be eaten at the table of King Jesus. That's the anointed one. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And why? Well, like, why doesn't Israel grow their own crops? Well, they've got work to do, and we see it in, in verse 6. But you shall be called, you Israel, shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. They are, um, 
Israel there is, is priests of God living in God's presence, making God known to, to the nations. Israel is exporting one good, and it is God. They are saying, come and learn about our God. For, for hundreds of years, thousand at least, come and get our God. And what's beautiful here is that this is what every true Jew wanted. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, when God rescues Israel out of Egypt, this is the job he gave them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which we know they didn't, but if you did, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people uh, uh, of Israel. God said that to Moses, and now they're doing it. How beautiful. Israel is finally content with their job. We get to make Yahweh known to the nations. And they can't keep this year of the Lord's favor to themselves. They want everyone to enjoy it. Americans, come and get it. Cuba, come and get it. Come and meet our God. And the nations are on board with this plan. Listen, listen at the end of verse 6. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in, and in their glory you shall boast. God has done this remarkably transforming work in Israel. Um, and this, this money isn't, I don't think here, at least any, any kind of forced tribute. It's not a, a bribe to keep uh, the King Jesus at bay from taking over a foreign nation. This is honor. This is, this is the nations giving gifts to God's people. This is like the wise men did to the infant Christ. This is a testimony to God's gracious tra transforming of undeserving sinners that God has accomplished through his anointed one. And so this is a shocking reversal we see in verse 7. Instead of your shame, Israel, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So there's a complete turnaround that Israel's experiencing here. It's no more shame for the years of, of idolatry. No more shame for trusting in foreign nations, for their rejection of the prophets. No more shame for the re rejection and crucifixion of their own, own Messiah. No more shame for their rejection of the apostles. There had been reason for shame, but forgiveness cancels the reason for shame. There's no more shame left. And now there's a generous double portion so that they can rejoice in their lot. And they look around and they're like, how did we get in on this grace of God? We were so undeserving and he's outpoured mercy upon us. They, in, in all of Israel, there's no evidence remaining of God's disapproval because of the ministry of this, uh, of, of this anointed one. There's nothing that would quench their everlasting joy. Now, perhaps what is most shocking here, is, and may, maybe you're shocked, but perhaps what's most shocking isn't what God does for, for Israel, um, which is wonderful, but why he does it. And we see why he does it in, in verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So God does this because he loves justice. See, God has done an amazing work in the hearts. He has replanted them for his glory as oaks of righteousness. And so now he responds to their justice and to the fact of their right worship and to the fact of their hating wrong. And so he can bring recompense to them. He can reward them for their obedience, which God in Israel's past had a hard time doing. They needed a new covenant, and now they are enjoying the benefits of this new covenant, and then they get to enjoy this ongoing covenant with him. Israel finally does what God has always required. He blesses them, and the nations are blessed as he blesses them. God's transforming grace has done in them, so now he can do for them, and he does. There's no more need for another covenant. The covenant strands the Abrahamic covenant, um, the, uh, the Davidic covenant are intertwined into this everlasting covenant that, that Israel gets to enjoy. The sacrifice of the suffering servant, the anointed one in chapter 53, leads to this unending covenantal blessing in chapter 61. 
we see that this is going to be an ongoing blessing that, 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 that Israel enjoys in, in verse 9. Their offspring shall he be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. God orchestrates this great turnaround for Israel so that his people make him known, right? That's, that's, that's what he's doing. He's orchestrating this great work so that Israel makes God known. He puts himself on display by transforming, this is what God does, undeserving sinners through his anointed one. And that's what God's doing now in the church age, right? He's putting himself on display by transforming undeserving sinners through his anointed one. In Christ, our shame has been forgiven. In Christ, we have entered into everlasting joy. In Christ, we have this job as serving as priests and ministers to the Lord, making him known among the nations. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. As we see the same language to the church applied uh, of, of what Israel in the future will do. We have this blessing of calling people into the joy of knowing Jesus. We proclaim to them the shame of their sin can be taken away. We tell them how they can live an eternal life as oaks of righteousness. This is the good news we go from here to bring into the world. Right? That's what we have the job of this upcoming week. What a privilege. We welcome sinners to come to the anointed one for transforming grace. Everyone around us needs it. And we can welcome them to say, I know who can change you. Jesus Christ can. And that's true for each of you this morning. If you're not right with him, Jesus Christ transforms sinners. And we eagerly wait. God is going to do the work here on this world that he's promised for undeserving Israel. And we shouldn't be shocked because he did that to us. So why should we be surprised that he is going to fulfill his promises to undeserving Israel in the future? It's what God does. He gives good news. He gives promises and he keeps them. He will replant Israel's oaks of righteousness for his glory. So of course, he's going to faithfully give them their recompense because he loves justice and we're the beneficiaries of that. How is this change going to happen to his people? And how does this change happen to us? So he says that he does this because I, the Lord, love justice. How does, how does this change happen where he can give them their recompense? And here he's talking about their obedience. We know that our sins are forgiven because of Christ's righteousness. We know that transformation happens as we are new creatures in Christ. And yet we obey. We are different. We are transformed. How is this going to happen where God can freely recompense his people and keep his promises to them? That is where we go next. It's answered in this next section, and if you need a little sub subheading for 61, 10 through 11, it is the rejoicing of the anointed one. The rejoicing of the anointed one. And, uh, and it is possible, as we read here, it could be Zion uh, the, or, or Israel doing the, doing the rejoicing, but I think that this is the anointed one uh, speaking from the first person in the beginning of this chapter is now the anointed one speaking in verse 10. So we see Jesus uh, rejoicing. We see God the Son rejoicing. And listen to how he rejoices. Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, more headdresses, and as a bride adorns himself with her jewels. Here, here we see what makes Christ rejoice. God has clothed the anointed one in the garments of salvation. salvation. He has given the anointed one a robe of righteousness. The Messiah has been approved by God, has been equipped by God with all the resources he needs to bring salvation to his people. 
When a groom puts on his suit or a bride puts on the wedding dress, you know what they're there for, right? It's, 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 it's clear. That person's getting married. It's the only reason why you wear a dress like that. In his garments of salvation, in his robes of righteousness, the anointed one announces, I'm the one. I'm here and I'm able. What you need done, I'm ready to do. If you need salvation, Jesus says, I do that. You need righteousness, I have that. I've arrived to do my Father's work. He rejoices in that and what good news that is for us. Think if we had to think when the anointed one says this, he speaks after his, his resurrection. He rejoices in the Father's completed plan. Sin has been paid for. Redemption has been won. Reconciliation accomplished. The curse has been satisfied. And now it's time for the unfurling of God's transforming grace. Verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up its nature, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. See, this anointed one has power to transform undeserving sinners. Isaiah describes this change kind of like plant growth. It's, it's natural. We aren't surprised, surprised plants grow. Some of you are. But in general, I mean like your personal plants, but we see that things grow. It's natural that the ground, that the garden has the resources necessary to sprout seed. Well, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, has the resources to cause righteousness and to cause praise to sprout before the nations. The one robed in righteousness will grow oaks of righteousness. A famine of righteousness is going to be followed by an abundant harvest and a drought of praise by the flowing rivers of praise. This anointed one is our Jesus. He is clothed in robes of righteousness. He's wearing the garments of salvation. He has the uniform of transforming grace. It's kind of like if you are in help and you see you need of help and you see a police officer and you go running to him, Jesus is wearing the uniform of transforming grace. And if you need to be transformed, and we are all needing to be transformed continually, we run to Jesus Christ and he has the resources. What Christ will one day complete in the nation of Israel, he has begun to do in this amazing way that we never deserve, never imagined in the worldwide church. Although if you read through Isaiah 40 to 66, you see a lot of it. Um, but for the Jews of Jesus today, it was a complete shock. You're saving the Gentiles? In Christ, our dead ground has sprouted life. And righteousness flourishes where there had one time only been sin. The proud, have turned to praise God, and the self-centered have become sun-centered. Put your trust in the anointed one who does the impossible. He is dressed to save, and he will transform you for his glory. He has the power. He changes us from selfish to serving and from greedy to generous, from resentful and bearing grudges to forgiving and overlooking offenses, from shame and self-focus to worship Jesus greatly rejoices because the Father has equipped him for this work and he is willing for all of us to come to him. You just have to go to him, right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, I, and he won't cast you out. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, come to me. I've got the garments of salvation. Though these robes of righteousness, I will replant you and remake you and you'll love growing. That's good news. Our God is put on display by transforming undeserving sinners and God is growing in, in his garden fruitful plants so that he alone is glorified, so that he alone is magnified. Christ, the anointed one, rejoices that the Father has uniquely equipped him. And so will you be the land that God causes righteousness to grow in? Will you be that land? See, Jesus is about change, and will you be the one he changes? And so if you're looking on the outside of this, it's like, change sounds great, there's no other place to go to be transformed than Jesus Christ. If you want to be reconciled to God because you've lived as, 
as his enemy. If you want to become his worshiper because you've spent all of your time focusing upon yourself, if you want to live a life of submitting to him and being under his rule, and previously you've lived under your own laws, which has just been horrible, if you want to live a life that pleases him, he is willing and he can change your heart if you are willing to admit that you are ground that can't grow anything pleasing. Right? Like, I give up trying. I can't do it on my own. If you listen to him, and you have to come believing that he is willing to change you. You have to come believing that he is for you, that he would rejoice to save you, that he can transform you in undeserving sinner. That's the hope of this passage. Christ rejoices, right? Verse 9, or verse 10. No, I changed this. I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm in chapter 63, and that was not right. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Does that sound welcoming? Jesus rejoices that he can save you. If you need salvation, come to him. He's willing to reach out with God's transforming grace and save a sinner like you. He came to bring the needy comfort. He came to comfort those who mourn. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Will you turn to God's transforming grace to undeserving sinners through his anointed one? If you are in Jesus Christ, being saved is doing that again and again and again and again. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for the privilege, and um, it is humbling uh, to go to this word written 2,700 years ago and to find good news of the anointed one. We rejoice that you have resurrected Christ from the dead, that after he called out, it is finished, you raised him from the dead, and that he is at your right hand. You have exalted him, and so now he gives that transforming grace to undeserving sinners like us. Thank you, Father, for having this wonderful plan. Thank you for letting us be the privileged participants, and we rejoice that you keep all of your promises, uh, in, 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 including to, to your people, Israel. We love seeing the grace that you have to undeserving sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.